doing this evening, hopefully learning this evening that which uh, really should have been covered last week, but because of different things it didn't happen. But um, before we get started, I really want to complete something that uh, only because of time I wasn't able to complete last week. And I think a lot of people had the stress that once I got the subject started, I didn't end it last week. So I'd like to complete that um, uh, simply because uh, an issue was raised, which is a troublesome issue. A number of people came over to me today to remind me of it, which is perfect proof that it was troubling, because people don't usually uh, remember the continuity until we get underway. So I'd like to start with clarifying something that I said at the end of the shear last week, and after that we'll get to right back into the text. I mentioned last week, <coughs> uh, we got off into a discussion about the concept of Eved, the concept of being a servant of God, and how a person in the state of being a servant can in fact find his potentials, and that uh, being a servant of God can really be a meaningful pursuit of that paradoxical term, freedom. There are all kinds of different forms of freedom, and essentially what we were talking about is that as long as a person is in a state in which that which he is, that which his potentials are, uh, he can't reach them, he can't manifest them, he can't actualize them, that's the true state of captivity that man is in. And when a person can go through the method, process, the discipline, all of those terms, which are hard terms to listen to, but all to make available the potentials that are really what they are, that discipline is really the road towards a, a deeper freedom. So on the literal level, it might not necessarily be viewed as freedom, because I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I can't do this, and I must do that. So in the, in the literal sense of freedom, it doesn't seem to be freedom, but in the deeper sense of what we're looking at in terms of freedom, it's a different story altogether. After that, I don't know how we got off into it, I believe it was because of a question, I made mention of the fact that the free will system that God gives us allows us to make choices, and the choices that we make hopefully will help us arrive at that, at that inner freedom. So we, got, we will make choices that will require discipline, will, will require the acceptance of, of, of a regiment of behavior that will come to actualize certain potentials. And I mentioned that though God felt that free will was the best system by which the world would, should work and that people should develop, there is a concept that God suspends his free will in certain situations, which means not his free will, but our ability to function with free will. And that's a very, very scary thought, because if we know that we might be operating without the function of free will, one question that came up last week, which was a very practical question, so how do I know that I'm not beating my head into a wall that uh, is impregnable, that uh, is not conquerable? That's number one. I think that there are even more uh, stirring, soul-searching questions than that one. I mean, the, the notion or the feeling that a person is trapped and that the person cannot exercise the choices that will aid in his development I think that's scary enough. Forget about the notion, am, am I banging my head into the wall or not banging into the head into the wall, which is a description of frustration and futility, which are pretty heavy emotions to deal with. But on a more basic level, the, um, the notion that I can't move anymore, I can't grow anymore, and that and whatever I do can be terribly reprehensible and terribly abhorrent and... Uh, and uh, I can't stop it. I can't help it. Other questions also come up. The question of, um, the question, uh, for instance, of responsibility after one loses free will. 
is a very essential uh, question. Well, okay. If you want to take my free will away from me, that's fine and good, but then you can't hold me responsible for anything that I do afterwards. Um, are we held responsible? Are we just monsters without any responsibility after free will? So there's obviously a whole host of questions and problems that comes up from, from this, from this uh, piece of information that either correctly or incorrectly I divulged. So what, <coughs> what I'd like to do Okay. What I'd like to do is I would like to quote from a number of parts of Maimonides that deals with this concept, this concept of the loss of free will. And we'll see that when we learn the Rambam, when we learn the, the words of Maimonides, that the issue will become very, very clear to us. And uh, the significance of it and where we fit in, or thank, uh, thank the Lord that we don't fit in, into, into this kind of a concern. So let me do a little quoting from the Rambam because the language of the Rambam speaks for itself. There are many verses within the Bible and within the prophets that seem to, to negate the uh, statement which I made earlier, which is the statement that everybody is free to choose. Earlier on in the chapter before, in the laws of Tshuva, Maimonides says, that a person has everything available to him in terms of choice to, to make everything lean in the direction of the positive and become a tzaddik and if he wants to go the opposite way a negative way that's also in his, in his, uh, in his availability All right. so now Maimonides begins the next chapter the sixth chapter of the laws of tshuva by the way, this has, the laws of Tshuva have been translated into English in a very worthwhile translation. There are verses which seem to suggest that we don't always have free will. And many people, when they come across these verses, run into a lot of trouble. Aha! There is no free will. The Torah says it very clearly. The Yala al and it uh, comes upon their minds that it is God that decrees upon man what man does in terms of the quality of his actions, good or bad. And the heart of man is not within his, within his, uh, within his own control so that he should make it go in the direction that he wants it to. Okay. <coughs> And I would like to now explain a very, very great principle in Jewish thinking that will clarify all of the verses that seem to suggest that we don't have free will. And the Rambam says the following. And listen carefully to the way the Rambam places down this concept. When an individual is an individual, or a country on a national level, sins, and he does a certain thing which is wrong to do, and he does it with full knowledge and full willingness, the way that, the way that he was taught and the way that he learned, it is worthy that God should exercise a form of retribution for a negative behavior. And he's not going to explain why, but it's worthy that there should be a retribution. And it's only God that really, really knows the appropriate retribution for an activity. Man doesn't know. Only God knows, because only God can measure all of the factors that were, were principal factors in the activity. The environment, the motivations, the background, the intention, all of these things, no human being can know them fully, and certainly no human being can measure them all correctly to know what would be the appropriate response for a negative behavior. God is the only one that knows this. Yesh, and therefore there is. Chet, uh, there can be a, uh, a negative behavior. Shahadin now say that the law requires that God will will uh, respond to that negative behavior in this world, begufo, doing something to him in a physical way, or doing something to his money, 
which is a, a very difficult concept, or that his young children that are not yet responsible for their own actions might suffer. The yeshchet, and there is though other negative behavior, shadin no saying that the law requires shiniframi manu la'olam haba that the that God's response to man is not within the uh, punishment or taking away something from him in this physical world, but taking up being an experience of pain that is on a spiritual level after he leaves this world. The and a person very conceivably is not punished at all in this world. He might have a wonderful life. He might be he might be quote unquote the success. Right? And nevertheless, there is, there is a punishment that will come in a form of a spiritual uh, punishment later afterwards. And there are other things that have measurements of, of God's response, both here and there. So there are all kinds of combinations. Okay. <coughs> and then the Maimonides says in the next halacha, and I won't quote it, but I will say it, you know, very, very precisely, that this is all true until a person does tshuva, until a person corrects his ways. But if a person corrects his ways, there is no greater safeguard and protection against any form of punishment, be it here or after he leaves this world, than the safeguard that is created by virtue, that is created by the virtue of tshuva. Okay? Now. Now. Now, the Afshar, and here we come to the point. The Afshar Sheyachta Adam Chait Gadol, Oichatoyim Rabim, but it's possible that a person transgresses a major, major thing, a major crime, Oichatoyim Rabim, or it's not a major crime, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a less severe crime, but he commits it with tremendous amount of regularity. There is a possibility that a person does uh, a, a something which is very, very negative, or not so negative, but does it with such regularity that because it's done with such regularity, the fact that there is, if somebody has totally disregarded something, even if it's not the most severe of things, but the total absence of the recognition of the, of the particular thing, that it's possible that God said, that God uh, holds back from this person the opportunities that would lend themselves to the person to change. Which is very scary. Right? So, and what is the purpose of this? Because God wants that this person should die and that should be the ultimate response and retribution for that which he did. Okay? And then Maimonides brings all of the verses that suggest this and somebody brought one of these verses up last week. The verses by Parah. The verses by power. Now, let's explain. Let's explain what's going on over here. Let's explain what's going on over here in Maimonides. <coughs> the Medrash says in regards to Parai, the Medrash says in regards to Parai that the Medrash says an example. We know that Paro had free will in the first five in the first five plagues that came to Egypt, Paro had the choice of, of letting the Jewish people go or not letting the Jewish people go, and in his defiance of what he knew he had to do, a plague came. And this happened five different times. After the five times that Paro exercised the free will and misused the free will, the next five times were already a defiance that wasn't really a defiance that came from within, according to Maimonides' interpretation at least, but it was a defiance that God actually, in other words, God didn't create any kind of scenario or thing to happen in, in, uh, in Paris' life that an opportunity to consider change should happen. In other words, the normal opportunities 
that might greet a person, that he might consider making a change, all of those normal circumstances that might come to a person after, after which it's still only his choice to make the change, and not that you make the change, God made sure he didn't bump into anybody that would be persuasive. He didn't bump, in other words, not, no opportunity that would make him think differently came up. Why didn't those things come up? And in fact, God purposely avoided him ever coming into contact with those things because God said you reached the point that it would be better served if you would, if you would uh, have to die for the inequities that you committed. Right? Now let's explain what this is supposed to mean. Because on the surface, what this seems to be, what this seems to be, seems to be that God uh, waits patiently and says you have one chance, you have two chances, you have three chances, and at some point in time, which we don't know, which we don't know, okay, the God says I gave you enough chances, all right, and uh, you didn't use the chances, you didn't use the opportunities of choice correctly, no more chances. And then there's a finality of where the person is going to be going. That's what the Raman seems like. And in that sense, the Raman seems to be discussing here something which is very harsh, something which is very, has a very uh, strong uh, import to what it's all about. So let's try to, first of all, develop an attitude of what the Rambam really means. Let's try to develop the attitude of the Rambam so that we put it in the proper perspective. After we put it in the proper perspective, there's a lot that we have to talk about in terms of how do I know if this does or doesn't apply to me, right? Which is obviously the most relevant part of it, but let's first get the attitude first. There's a medrash in particular in regards to... In, in regards to um, in regards to Paro and the fact that God took away the, uh, the availability of choices for Paro to change at a certain point. The, the Medrash says it in an analogy and the Medrash says that uh, there was once a king that brought in all of the subjects that worked for him and he engaged them to plant trees. And some of them were engaged to plant trees that would be a fruit and others were engaged to be a, uh, to uh, plant trees that would not be a fruit. So one of the subjects, listening to the direction, said, this doesn't make sense. If you have all of us in front of us, and we're all obligated to plant trees, let's all plant trees that be a fruit. So the king said, you're wrong, because, as in, because uh, we need trees to be a fruit, because we need to consume fruit, for whatever reasons we consume fruit but we also need firewood to produce heat in the, cold, in the cold months. So therefore the king said, the same way that you're accomplishing something meaningful by planting trees that produce fruit, the ones that are planting the trees for the wood, for the lumber, for whatever else, are also producing something which is meaningful as well. This is what the Madras said. Kach, so the Madras says, in similar fashion is what's going on over here with Paro. When God put the person on this earth, right, the person has the choice to produce fruit. In other words, every person's function is eventually, sooner or later, to enunciate his understanding, his appreciation, and his personal revela revelation of God. Every single human being is created with the purpose of revealing an aspect of God. Every single individual. Now, based upon what we've been learning over the last couple of weeks, one could say, that's very nice and true for the person that understands his mission and chooses to, to address his mission and then produces the fruit of his mission. But what's with the people that opt out? What's with the people that are not interested in these missions? What's with those people? So seemingly they don't fall into the category of actualizing their unique contribution to, to the manifestation of God. So the Medrash says it's not true. It's not true. And the Medrash ends off the analogy and the Medrash says because the same way that a human being can proclaim God in this world, everybody sooner or later proclaims his belief in God and his, his understanding of God's truth. Some of us can do it here in productive ways and fruitful ways by producing real fruit. Others do it 
in the world to come from the place of spiritual pain. And the Medrash substantiates this, and the Medrash says, because what goes on when a person is going through spiritual pain after he leaves this world? There is a song that is sung in the pain of those moments. And the song that is sung in those those painful moments is Yafa Danta, Yafa Zachisa, Yafa Chiyasa, which translated into English means, God, you were right, and I was wrong. In other words, the ultimate humility, the ultimate recognition of what's correct and what's not, ultimately happens. But there are many different ways that it can happen. It can happen by the person pushing himself to the discipline and to, that's required to be able to make that proclamation and really believe it and really feel it within the context of this world. But if it doesn't happen here, the Madrish says, don't think that it doesn't happen at all. There's no neshama that eventually doesn't come to the gripping realization of the existence of God and the truth of God. We have a choice, though. The choice that lies in the inevitable is that we can do it in pleasant, productive, fruitful ways, or we can do it in another way. We can do it through a painful process, which is not just, I want to get rid of you because you misused choice. But the painful process itself is a form of revelation. So rather than to learn in the Rambam, that what the Rambam is saying is that God says, I'll give you one, two, three, four, five chances, and after that, to hell with you, literally, what the Rambam is really saying is that God is changing process. God is changing method. I would have liked to see the method of, 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 of your realization and your proclamation of God come through your choice, through productive and fruitful and positive forms of this world. And I gave you the potentials and I put you into a world where you can make those proclamations. But if you don't do it in this way, the result is all still inevitable. But the result will be in a way that's expressed through pain. Expressed through pain. Now this might sound very unbelievable to people. And I'm just going to share with you the fact that contrary to what many of us logically believe that pain does not produce a revelation of God experience shows that it does for the people that are stand to the sidelines and witness pain of other people they have nothing except recriminations of God but for the people themselves that go through it very often either in the short term or in the long term or in the long term the painful process works not necessarily in ways that are rational to us but there's a, a chemistry between the pain and the quality of an ashama that produces a proclamation of God and that pain with the chemistry of the neshama producing a proclamation of God is not necessarily something that's reserved for after this world sometimes it happens in this world itself I know countless cases and I'm a little bit afraid to talk about any one of them because the people might feel uncomfortable because some of them have very clear earmarkings of who they are and what they are but I know countless cases of, of people that went through tremendous pain, tremendous tragedy and in the short term there was no rationale for it but in the long term those neshamists came closer and closer to pro- proclaiming a belief in God. I know countless cases, crises with death of children in particular, and, and other situations as well. Now, that doesn't mean that every situation where there's a crisis and a tragedy will automatically produce it, because even tragedy and crisis and pain also has the choice of being, becoming a proclamation or not, as long as it's in this world. In the next world, stripped of all of the physical uh, captivity and all of the physical and the material blindness, the neshama comes to the clarity of God and the truth of the God and does sing the song, Yafa Dante, Yafa Zachisa, Yafa Chiyasa. You, you judge correctly those that were innocent, you judge correctly innocently those that you judged guilty were correct, judged guilty correctly as well. So when we look back at the Rambam, what we have to realize in the Rambam is that when the Rambam says that God takes away free will from a person, 
That doesn't mean to say that the ultimate goal and the ultimate contribution that every soul is to make in terms of the proclamation of God is aborted. It's not aborted. It's not as if God says, I'm fed up with you, you blew it. You're not doing what you have to do, bounce you right out of here. But what there is, is, is a change in the method by which this neshama will come to the gripping realization of that proclamation. So one, the first thing that we have to realize is that it's a shift in process. Now, obviously, there's no human being that's given the choice and really, really understands the choice that wouldn't prefer. In other words, if you tell a person the proclamation that your neshama has to make, it's going to make. And now your choice is to make it fruitfully or unfruitfully. Right? That choice is yours. If a person would really, really understand that and not get sidetracked in a lot of the other things of this world, there's no person that wouldn't want to produce it in the fruitful way. But what God says is, it's not happening that way. So therefore God says, Yevad Berisha. Let this person go down with his negativity because his going down with his negativity will eventually lead to the proclamation. We have to take the negativity out of this situation in order to lead to that proclamation. This is just in the attitude of it what the Raman is talking about. Hence the example that the Medrash says of the king with the subject planting the trees, that's what the analogy is. The king, in other words, when we talk about a king, the king has a view. The king has a goal. The king has a mission. The king has an agenda. God is also a king. And God has an agenda for his world to come to the realization of who he is. Not because God is egocentric. Not because God needs it. But because God understands that the ultimate state of blessing will only come by man being engulfed in that realization of God. That's where the blessing is going to come from. And God is committed to man's blessing. So God says, I'm committed to your blessing. Your blessing entails an understanding of God and therefore coming close to God by virtue of understanding. I'll give you the choice. But if the choice is not accomplished, if that whole goal is not accomplished through choice, man's soul will cleave to God in the realization of God through another process. The process being the process that the Raman says, taking away the choice and the proclamation coming through a process of faith. <clears throat> now, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that if you think about this idea, and I don't want to get into it very, very deeply, it's really not a new idea. In other words, it's not as if the Raman came up with this idea, and before the Raman we never knew this idea. Take, for instance, a person that committed a capital crime. A capital crime that was, that was punishable with death. The halacha is, and I think I shared this with you once long ago, or not so long ago, but a while back, that the law was that when this person was taken to his capital punishment, the people that took him to his capital punishment wanted to make a bauchuva out of him. And they told him to confess, and they told him to do tshuva. So the question that all comes up is that if you confess and you do tshuva, so then why do you have to go to the capital punishment afterwards? In other words, if this person truly does an authentic, authentic tshuva, so then why does best and why do the courts go through with the capital punishment? It seems, it seems, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I shared with you a very uh, dramatic example of Achan. Achan stole from the spoils of Jericho, which he wasn't allowed to, it was forbidden. He stole from those spoils of Jericho on the Shabbos, which means that he transgressed the Shabbos in the transportation of those things. And because of it, the next war, everybody lost the next war because we were all collectively responsible for it. Now, in that particular episode, Achan finally confesses that he did this wrong and he explains how it came about that he did such a thing. And he goes off to his punishment. And the Chazal tell us that as Achan was going off to his punishment, realizing that he had made an awful mistake, two things occurred. One, he composed the second chapter of the Aleinu, the Al-Kainakave. The Al-Kainakave, the first letters of those three words, spells out the word Achen. He signed his name for the second paragraph of Aleinu. The Al-Kainakave is a prayer which is said three times a day as the conclusion of every single prayer that a Jew prays. And it speaks 
of, you know what it speaks of? It speaks of God's ultimate goal of realizing him coming to the forefront. And it always bothered me, why was that the theme of what Aachen composed? First of all, the whole notion that here is a person that committed a capital crime, did tshuva, and then composes that which becomes part of our prayers is, is literally is a mind-blower. But, but besides that, besides that kind of drama, why the Alkei Nekavim? Why did Aachen come up with Alkei Nekavim more than anything else? You know why? Because the Alkei Nekavim was a combination. The Alkei Nekavim was an expression of the realization of truth and falseness within his own the acceptance of punishment because Aachen was going to go through Aachen had to go through the capital punishment how did Aachen reconcile to himself the fact that he was authentically regretful of what he had done and nevertheless he was going through capital punishment so Aachen knew what we learned here this evening Aachen understood that God God the way that God made his world and made the neshama of every person is that it ultimately proclaims the truth of God. Aachen realized that his proclamation of the truth is going to have to come through, the, through a painful process. And that's also part of the agenda. That's also part of the agenda. I had the opportunity of doing it by producing fruit. I wasn't able to do it that way. I know now I'm not resentful. I'm not rebelling against the punishment, but I understand that the function of this punishment is that my neshama should proclaim it the other way. Now, if Aachen had this perception of what the context of punishment was, it's very understandable why he said al Nekava. Because what al Nekava talks about is one thing, the inevitable realization of God. Why was Aachen talking about the inevitable? Because he was experiencing the inevitable in his own life at this point. Aachen himself was going through the experience of the inevitable. I didn't choose to do it the right way. The inevitable realization is going to come another way. That's the, that's the point in terms of punishment. So in other words, really, really, the concept is not an alien concept. The idea that there can sometimes be a finality to a human being. But the, the, what needs to be explained is in the attitude of the finality the finality doesn't mean that that which you had to accomplish spiritually in terms of proclamation was totally aborted. That's the part of the attitude which isn't correct. It is a change, a painful change, a, pain, a change that we wouldn't want to have, but in the process that every neshama, by the what it is, sooner or later proclaims Hashem. And if you would know I wish that you should never know the amount of stories of tragedy and crisis that have come my way and you would see how true this is. How there is an inevitably, an inevitable factor in the neshama that does proclaim that which it wasn't prepared to ever deal with before. There is, this phenomenon is a glaring phenomenon in many, many situations. Okay. That's enough in terms of the attitude. In terms of the attitude. But... <clears throat> Let's talk now, quoting from Maimonides, a whole group of things as it relates to us. Let's quote it as it relates to us. Number one, the Rambam makes it very, very clear that we have no way. Number one, there's a whole list of things here, but let's just go through the list. Number one, the human being has no way of judging the quality of action or actions that would create this shift in the process. In other words, the shift of process of the person producing the fruit of proclamation by choice, that it should be shifted from that, that it should be shifted to a form of pain and even a form of death, the point at which God decides that it must shift from one to the other, the Ramam says very clearly there is nobody in the world that can know that except God. God is the one that has the agenda of the proclamation. God is the one that understands the chemistry of the neshama and when the neshama requires the shift. Man can never know it. Man can never know it. That's number one. Number two, okay, that only puts us into a cloud, so we don't know. Right? Number two, if one looks clearly in the Rambam, in what I quoted, and I'm going to quote more in a moment, 
the Rambam says very clearly the Rambam says very clearly that he uses the following term he says that since he was since he sinned since he sinned willingly and knowledgely and with knowledge of what he was doing therefore it comes a point where God takes away his ability to function still with choices that's what the Rambam says now the Rambam is saying a very interesting point here the Rambam is saying that there are two kinds there are two kinds of sins and listen carefully because again while we might not know where we go over the border from one into the other but the distinction we can understand what's the distinction the distinction is that sometimes we do things which are negative because we're attached to the negative we're attached to the negative we like that particular negative thing I'm inclined to it, I have a tendency to it, I enjoy it, I have an, a- an axe to grind, I have something to accomplish by it, I need... Whatever it is, it's goal-oriented. Right? It's goal-oriented. That's one whole set. Then, now, would I say that when the choice is of that nature, that the person is, is transgressing the gift of choice? Not really. In other words, it's not that he doesn't appreciate choice. It's not that he's sinning in the gift of choice. He just feels that these are the best choices. I'm just making my what I believe to be my best choice. Does he value choice? Of course he values choice. He values choice immensely. He just happens to think that he's making the best choices and the choices that he's making. Okay, That's one kind of an area. Right? Then there's a different area. Then there's an area where my attachment to the negative behavior is, is, isn't limited to the fact that I'm attached to the negative thing because I need, need the negative thing and this is my best choice. But where what I'm actually doing is I am ruining my ability to choose. Where I ruin my ability to choose. In other words, where it's not that I believe I'm making the best choice, right? It's not the ability that I'm making the best choice. Uh, I might really know deep down that I'm not making a good choice, right? But, but my what I'm doing over here is I want to be spiteful. I want to be against God. In other words, I want to use the freedom that I got from God against God. So, in other words, in other words, what I'm trying to do over here is. In other words, I'm taking the freedom and doing a sin with the freedom. In other words, the person that just has a hang-up that he loves, he loves, uh, he loves uh, uh, a burger with, with cheese. That's a choice that he's making. But he's, in other words, he's not using his freedom to fight against somebody. I'm not fighting against anybody. I love something and I can't control myself, so I go ahead and I do it. But that's not saying, that's not using the freedom as the tool of battle. Para. In other words, Para knew full well that he was destroying himself in his refusal to let the Jewish people go. But he felt that he could wage a war with God. So just as long as you give me freedom to choose, to let you go and not to let you go, and that it's all in my court, I'm not going to let you go. So in other words, that's where you're taking the freedom and you're using the freedom itself as a vehicle of negative. In other words, you're taking the freedom and you're sinning in the freedom itself. It's not, in other words, it's not that freedom, I'm not sinning in the freedom and I'm just attracted to something I can't control myself. That's a different thing. And this is a major difference between the two areas. Okay? Where the chait is in the bechira itself. And here we come to a very interesting point. Here we come to a very interesting point. Because the Rambam says, the Rambam says a very interesting thing. And, this, and with this interpretation that I just gave, it'll become clearer in a moment. The Rambam says something very interesting. The Rambam continues, after he gives all of the examples, the Rambam says the following thing. The Nevi'im and the Tzadikim, the prophets, the righteous people, they 
they were preoccupied with the concern of not losing their freedom. This was a subject on their minds. This troubled them. And where did they express their concern that they shouldn't lose their freedom, that they shouldn't lose the availability of producing the proclamation of God in a fruitful way through choice? Bitfilasa, in their prayers. And what did they pray for? So Maimonides says, La'azram al ha'emes, that God should always give me the insight to know what it is true and to be able to make my choices with the truth in front of me without covering up the truth. Right? And they prayed for this. David always asked God, teach me your ways. Now, if I was God, I would tell David, what do you want? I should teach you? Teach yourself. There's a Torah there, go and learn it. David's turning to God and saying, what's David's concern? David's concern is that he shouldn't lose his ability to be able to understand the difference between right and wrong. Now, here is a very interesting thing. And this is very much related to this parsha that we're learning this week. Why will prayer help? Why will prayer help? Seemingly, if the person did the sins that in God's mind should make him lose, should make him lose the, uh, the, the, the gift of free choice, so what is prayer going to help? What is going to help? So let me explain how it helps. When a person turns to God and says, I don't want to lose the freedom to choose. So no matter what his sin is, he's making a statement that his free choice is very important to him. The depth of the prayer, Hayrenia Hashem Darkecha, is that the, I value the freedom. I value the freedom to make the choice. I value it. I value it so much that I'm concerned that I'm going to lose it. And I don't want to lose it. And I'm turning to you, God. Please, don't ever take it away from me. You know what's happening in that prayer? The person is exercising the greatest Bechira of all. The Bechira to be a Becher. In other words, in the prayer, what is the person doing? He's making the conscious choice of always wanting to, to be a bocher. So in other words, I explained a moment ago that when what kind of sins make us lose our freedom because we sin in the freedom itself. Why does prayer help? Prayer helps because what prayer is essentially doing is the deepest choices of man are expressed in prayer. If I turn to God and I say to God, don't take away my free, free will, don't take away the freedom of choice that I have, I should always have that ability. That's the greatest statement that I, I, am, I am choosing to want to function with, with the freedom of choice. So this is one thing that the Rambam says. <coughs> then the Rambam says, a little bit further, the Rambam says, Umaz, Then the Raman goes on, and the Raman says something which is also interesting, which I'd like to, to come around full swing over here. The Raman continues, and the Raman says that there is another thing besides prayer and prophets which always preserve our sensitivity to choice. He talks about prophets also preserving our sensitivity to choice, which I'm not going to go into right now. But then the Raman says a third thing, and the Raman says the following thing. The Ramam says, V'aid, and another thing which always preserves our freedom to choose, Shenasam ba'am kayach lilmaid olahavin, because God gave us all of the opportunities to learn and to understand. Let's explain. So the Ramam says, Shemidazu b'chal adam. This characteristic is true of every person. Shekol's manchu nimsh b'darke Just as long as he pushes himself to be disciplined by the paths of wisdom, that he's going to be a learning individual, he's going to be a person that's going to learn, and he's going to keep his mind open to learning the Hatzedek, and he will try to pursue um, a straight way of living, that will nurture a desire for it. In other words, what is the Ramam saying? That there are two major components that preserve our, our affinity for Bechira, and therefore our always holding on to it. Tefillah, 
and learning. Why? Because other than the fact that, see, most of us think that what's the accomplishment of learning? No, uh, learning gives me knowledge. Learning gives me insight. Learning gives me w- the knowledge of what to do and how to do. The Ramam saying there's something else that comes out of learning. The desire, the desire to, o- to always re- want to choose and to the desire to do the right thing. So in other words, learning itself nurtures desire. The, what, what happens, in other words, what happens to a person that's going to suffer the, destruct, the, the punishment of losing his choice is because what he has done has really desensitized his ability for proper desire. So the Ramam says, what helps to develop desire? The lear- learning always helps to develop desire. And as long as desire is there, developed through learning, a person doesn't have to be afraid that he's losing his contact with his ability to choose. So in other words, though last week you went out of here concerned, hey, maybe I'm in that category, my answer to you is that if you are in fact concerned about it, the concern itself is an indication, is an indication that the Bechira is very live within you. I would only suggest that concern alone is not enough. But tefillah and limud also help. The expression to Hashem that I always want to be able to be the baicher is, is essential. And learning always preserves the desire, right? That a person should be desirous of choice is nurtured by the learning of Torah that always develops that, the, the good side the side that's going to want to desire the things that are right. Now, I mentioned parenthetically that this is very much thematic in the portion of the week. I want to share that with you because it's very, it's very interesting and it's very relevant to, to our lives also. In this, in this week's portion, we, had a very, uh, we have a very disturbing thing happening. Yaakov gets the blessings from his father Yitzchak through an impersonation of Esav. And the amount of questions that can be asked about this could fill a book. This is not truthful, it's dishonest, number one. Number two, if, Yaakov in fa- if Yitzhak in fact had in mind Esav, the fact that the physical body of Yaakov was in front of him wouldn't give the blessing to Yaakov. Blessings don't happen by who's in the physical parameter of the blesser. Blessings have to do with the intent of the person that's giving the blessing. So the fact that Yaakov's in front instead of Esav, what is that going to accomplish? That accomplishes nothing. So what was Rivka doing? That's the second question. A third question, if Yaakov in fact was supposed to get the blessings, as Rivka claimed she had heard in divine inspiration, why couldn't it just go straight? Why couldn't Rivka tell Yitzchak about it? Why couldn't God tell Yitzchak about it? Why did it have to go through such a peculiar fashion? And fourth of all, fourth question that if Yitzhak really really made a decision that the blessings belonged to, y- to Esav the moment that he finds out that it was Yaakov instead of flying into a rage Yitzhak says let him be blessed no problem I mean if somebody would have pulled the wool over my eyes that way and impersonated another person the second after you find out about it when the true person shows up no problem, let him be blessed. What, what, what's going on here? So the Svasema says something here which is very, very interesting. Uh, the Hasidic master sometimes had a perception of what was going on in a person's Avedis Hashem that's phenomenal. The Svasema says the following thing. The Svasema says, Yitzchak had all of the Cheshbanis in the world. He had all of the calculations in the world why the blessing belonged to Esau. Okay, and... I said a shir about it, it's in the Mepharshim. What the reasons were, we're not going to go into it, but he had an ironclad reason why he believed that it belonged to Esau. But after all of the reasons that Yitzhak had, Yitzhak still knew one thing. Whatever I do, I want to do what God wants. In other words, I have to engage myself in all of the systems of making a decision. I can't just stand, sit back on my couch and say, I'm not going to make any decisions in life. My only decision is I want 
to do what God wants me to do, and I don't know what that is, but I'll sit back and that, and everything's just going to happen. Obviously not. We have to go through the decision-making process. But even though Yitzhak went through a very intensive decision-making process, but Yitzhak knew that as intense as his decision-making process is, that the fact that he was making the most intensive decision-making process, that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is that when I'm finished with decision-making process, I'm convinced that this is what God wants. And that's why it's significant. It's not significant because I made the choice. It's significant because after I go through an honest process, I can feel comfortable that God's behind me. I tell this to people very often that when they have to make difficult choices, okay, I always tell them, don't think that the choice that you're making, if it's the right choice, you're making alone. Because if it's the right choice, there's a Hashem that's behind you, that's helping you in the choice. And that's important to know. So what Yitzhak understood, in other words, the delight that Yitzhak had that he came to a decision, the deepest delight was because, because of the intense process of decision, I believe that this is what Hashem wants. However, if, I w- if it would be made clear to me that this is not what Hashem wants, then I don't want it. Then I'm not interested in it. Now, here we have a very interesting thing. One of the questions that we can ask is, wasn't God intervening in the free will of Yitzchak? Yitzchak's free will was to bless was to bless Esav. Didn't God mix in and prevent Yitzhak from the choice? And the answer is very simple. It was no contradiction to his free will. Because the depth of his free will was that whatever I choose is only significant to me because it's the will of God. And if something else is the will of God, that's what my choice is. That's That's what my choice is. So even though I'm engaged and I'm obligated to go through my own intensive decision-making process when I'm finished with it, the nachas that I get from it, the pleasure that I get from it should be the pleasure of knowing, ah, I think I'm doing what God asked me to do. So then we can understand that when Yitzhak sees very clearly before his eyes that God meant it differently, he can say, Gambarachiyah. A person that lives in the exhilaration of his own choice not because, and that's the significance, is devastated when it doesn't happen. But if a person lives and says, I'm making a choice which I believe is Hashem's choice, but if Hashem doesn't desire it to be, so then the, it was Hashem's d- determination that it shouldn't come, I won't be devastated. Because after everything is said and done, I wanted to do what Hashem wants. And if Hashem doesn't want it, that's also good with me. And that's why Yitzhak was able to say with such tremendous ease, Gambarachia. Now with this we understand very well that in, in a deeper sense, who really blessed Yaakov? Hashem. In other words, who really blessed Yaakov was Hashem. Now, it wasn't really Hashem that was blessing Yaakov, it was Yitzchak. But since Yitzchak's function of blessing was evolved from his wanting to do the will of Hashem, so what was he doing? He was really introducing Hashem into the picture. And then it didn't remain his own personal uh, personal decision of blessing, but it was Hashem. Let make happen here what you want to happen here, and that's my deepest choice. <coughs> that is a depth of bechira. That's a depth of bechira, and that's where you can have a difference between choosing about an action and 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 the the choosing of the, of the deepest bechira of all. The deepest bechira of all. There are a lot of choices that we make in life, okay, that are sidetracks. We just get sidetracked. Uh, I like this. I'm entertained by this. I'm pulled away by this. Those things don't entail those. The fact that I get chopped up in something, okay? Those things we shouldn't get afraid of. Those things. Of course, we have to deal with those things. We have to try to understand why they're right, why they're wrong. Try to create safeguards. Try to, of course, okay. But as long as the person can retain the sense of that after everything is said and done, my choices should try to be the choices that Hashem wants, then the person is holding on to Bechira. It could very well be that the person falls, he's weak, he has a mechshah, he has a stumbling block, he has weaknesses. But that doesn't mean that his deepest Bechira isn't really to do the Bechira of Hashem. 
Obviously, if a person does everything wrong and says, yeah, but God, it, everything is fine because deep down I really want to do the will of Hashem, of course, then he might even be using that, that fact as an instrument to do the wrong things. And that's no good. But that's, so it's important to put what I said last week in its, in a, in its proper perspective. Are there any questions on this before we leave this? Yeah. Okay, that's an excellent question. And by and large, by and large, you're 100% right. By and large, you're 100% right. But do you have to realize that what can start off, now listen carefully to this, what can start off as merely um, a, a tool to get what I want and not to be a destruction of the Bechira itself, doesn't always stay there. In other words, a person can start off doing things that are negative simply because he, yeah, he has a weakness for those things. A person doesn't stay in one place in negative choice. It can start off with a weakness. It can end off as a philosophy. Do you follow what I'm saying? So something that starts as a weakness can eventually with regularity and that's one of the things that Maimonides talks about either a very very severe crime or a crime that's not so severe but that is done with regularity what's the idea of a sin that's done with regularity a sin that's done with regularity loses the dimension originally I only do it because I like to do it in the end when I do it I don't even believe that it's a mitzvah anymore in other words I begin to build I begin to build a resistance to the very nature of the relationship of God to me vis-a-vis this particular mitzvah. So, you know, it's, it's not a simple thing. It, it's, not, it's not to say that a person that enters into something which is negative because of a weakness or an attachment, that it only rem- it's, it stays there. In fact, in the list that Maimonides gives, the Maimonides by and large gives cases of the, of the non-Jewish world in terms of free will. In terms of free will, by and large, the cases that Maimonides talks about is Paro, um, who else is here? There are a lot of nice people here. But the Rambam also brings a case in the times of Elio Anavi. In the times of Elijah, where where the prophet says, that you, you were, you you made their hearts go so, so far away. In other words, the claim that their choice was taken from them. But if one investigates the story upon which this episode is said, we know that it had left the realms of the weakness and the attraction, and it had gone into realms of an out-and-out rebellion against God. That's already a different thing. That's where you're using your freedom that God gives you to fight Him. Where you're using the very gift in, 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 a, in, in that negative way. <coughs> Okay, are there are any other questions? Yes. No, I just want to make a comment. It almost seems like the holy day is Shemayim Kutmir or Shemayim. In other words, our choices in themselves aren't that important. It's the motivation behind our choices and it's the intense will. It's like even if we make a little mistake, we shouldn't think that it's that the end of it all because we made what we think is a mistake. The idea is that in the background we still had in mind that we wanted to ascend to what was okay. That's true. That's, that's very true. Um, to, to add to that, uh, it, it's though very important to be uh, as demanding as it's reasonable to be of ourselves because the question always comes up did I not reach did I not arrive at the correct decision because uh, because uh, because I didn't have the ability to arrive at the right decision or because I didn't want to arrive at the right decision you know and that's a very very delicate question the madrega, the level of the Yitzchak, that because he so, so much wanted to do the will of Hashem, though he had decided one way, it came out differently, 
You know, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a very very pure development of will. Okay, most people when they make decisions, there's a certain amount in their decision making process that they're going to abide by their decision because it was their decision. You know, and the 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 inclusion of of that dimension of God is 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 something that demands a tremendous amount of, of, of purity, you know, to it. It comes up in prayer also, by the way. This attitude is a very big attitude in prayer. We ask God for various things. We believe that they are the things that are good for us. Right? We believe that they're good for us. How do we approach God with things that we believe are the proper choices? So the Baal Shem Tev brings down, and the Baal Shem Tev taught his disciples, the truth of the matter is that I really dated it back much, much fur- earlier in our history. Now, when a person davens, even if he's 100% convinced that it's the right thing, he should end off his prayer with the words, but only if, it see- if you see it fit. Those words, only if you see it fit, you know, a person could say to him, you know, God could say to the person, I guess say, if I see it fit. You know, it's like your, your parent tells you something and you say, okay. You know, so what are your parents? What's your parent going to say back to you? And if it's not okay, you won't do it. You know. So in other words, there's a there's a certain you know, like I guess say, you know, if you see it fit, and then if I'm asking for it, and if you don't see it fit, you have to do it for me. I mean, where do those words?